Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 840, interview number three with Peter Lavenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on March 22nd of the year 2015. And once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves Peter Lavenda, the author of, among other titles, The Hitler Legacy, which we are talking about in this series of interviews. Peter, welcome back once again to our airways. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, we have been talking about uh, things that led up to, on the one hand, the sort of global economic resonance of the Third Reich and Nazism with elements around the world. We also have spoken about the origins of global jihad, and I'd like to uh, develop those themes uh, somewhat more completely in this interview. Now, at the end of World War II, or really before the end of the Second World War, the Third Reich underwent a diaspora, and uh, elements, both human and otherwise relocated to points distant, something we will be taking up in future interviews. By the way, I found the discussion of the Nazi elements in South Asia to be absolutely uh, more illuminating. And it's a subject, I, the subject of Nazism is something I know a fair amount about, but I found that to be uh, revelatory, frankly. Uh, in talking about the Nazi diaspora, Peter, if you would tell us First, about the SS and the personnel who were leaving Germany and Europe for points distant. And then let's talk about the money and the capital and the technical expertise, which also underwent something of a transplantation. Certainly. I think it's important to realize that as the war was coming to a close, it became very well known that the Allies considered the SS to be a criminal organization which meant that if you belonged to the SS, you were automatically going to be arrested, as opposed to if you were a normal soldier fighting for the German army, for the Wehrmacht, you would be demilitarized, but you would not be arrested and thrown into a prison camp. But if you were in the SS or the Gestapo or any of the police agencies of the Third Reich, you would find yourself being arrested. Why was this? This is because the SS itself was the elite manifestation of Nazi ideology. The emphasis on racial purity in order to belong to the SS uh, was well known. The uh, atrocities committed by the SS were well known. Running the uh, concentration camps and the death camps, which was part of the SS's purview, was well known. The SS Einsatzgruppe, when they went into a captured territory in the east, for instance, they were the foremost police agency that would go in and hunt down people who were considered to be undesirable elements, which included communists, of course, uh, socialists, leftists of various kinds, but also Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, other people that were considered, uh, they were on the list of people to be thrown into the camps. So the SS was responsible for all this. And it was understood that Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, had created this monstrosity of an organization which had spiritual aspirations as well. The SS recruitment was virtually a ritual initiation process, proving, of course, your racial purity back generations and generations, which was necessary. 
And all of this was because the SS represented the flower of the Nazi ideology. The SS was going to be the elite priesthood, if you will, of this very pagan religion. So they were on the list. These were people who were going to be arrested, and in many cases they were going to be thrown in prison for extended periods of time, or like the people at Nuremberg, the ones that were arrested there, they would be executed. So the SS understood this. They realized, number one, they were going to be hunted to the ends of the earth. That was the most striking situation that they faced in 1944 and 1945. But also they were the elite. These were the true believers. These were people who were not going to surrender their beliefs just because the war had ended. They were going to try to keep the flame alive. These were people who had gone through initiation ceremonies. These were people who had abandoned all pretense at being Christian. Most of them were had been Catholic or Lutheran to begin with. Of course, the German hierarchy was largely Roman Catholic. They had abandoned all of this. They had gone through a kind of conversion phase, which uh, we're these days calling radicalization. Uh, which I find to be a word that doesn't really carry a lot of information. I think that conversion is more is more appropriate when we're talking about uh, people being radicalized. And in the case of the SS, they were converted to this new religion. They were already predisposed to it because Hitler was a charismatic sort of messianic leader, and uh, his message reverberated and resonated the most with the people who would become SS officers. So these were people who had to leave. They had to defend themselves. They had to defend their own brothers in this network. They were set up to protect each other, to find places to live overseas. They had cooperated in a series of safe houses. They had to get their people out. And at the same time, as we will discuss, they also had to get their money out. They couldn't exist overseas in the networks that they had created without having a source of income, without having money that had been expatriated, valuables, artwork, uh, gold, that sort of thing. So the SS was ideally set up to create an underground resistance movement, a stay-behind movement in Germany and Austria and the captured territories, but also a broad network of self-help of survival in the Middle East, in South America, Africa, Asia, and as it turned out, even North America. So this was what we were dealing with in 1944, 1945, the SS seeing the handwriting on the wall and starting to create their exit strategy using Franco's Spain, Salazar's Portugal as places where they were stopping off places to consolidate their finances, to consolidate their paperwork before they went on to places like Latin America. But once the war was over and some of these networks were closed to them, then they needed another means of escape and another um, network to get out of Europe. And that, of course, became the infamous rat lines. Oh, yes. Uh, tell us although. Uh Veteran listeners are familiar with the Vatican Nazi operations and the rat lines in particular. If you would uh, give us an over overview of the rat lines, for, primarily for the benefit of newer listeners. Certainly. As you know, I wrote a book specifically on that. It's a fascinating, fascinating issue because it should not have existed the way it did. It should not have functioned the way it did. It's sort of counterintuitive if you're coming to the story fresh, but it's only all too realistic if, if you've been studying this for a while. The rat line was initially created by a Croatian Catholic priest, a Monsignor Draganovic, Prunoslav Draganovic. He was a functionary of the Catholic Church in Croatia, and we should realize that Croatia gave the Nazis one of their most rabid series of, of followers. The Croatian Nazis, the Ustashi, were people who 
created concentration camps on their own in the Balkans. They were people who uh, were extremely anti-Semitic. They were also anti-Serbian Orthodox. So the Serbian Orthodox were also at the uh, the point of their sword. The Ustashi were war criminals by any stretch of the imagination. Their leader, Ante Pavelic, was the head of the Ustashi, the head of the Croatian Nazi puppet regime. And in order to escape justice at the fall of the Croatian uh, puppet regime, it was uh, Krunoslav Draganovic who managed to get Pavelic and virtually the entire Croatian government out of uh, Croatia, out of Europe, through Italy, through a series of Roman Catholic safe houses, including monasteries, rectories, all sorts of institutions of that nature, got them out through Genoa and to Argentina. This was the very beginning of the rat lines. We are probably very familiar with the concept of Nazis in Argentina. But what started that uh, exodus to that country was this Catholic Monsignor. Now, the heads of these governments that were escaping could not escape under their own names, obviously. They needed false papers. They needed documentation at a time when Nazis were being heavily uh, hunted throughout uh, Europe. So they needed some kind of cover. And this is what uh, Draganovic was able to provide. He was able to provide false identity papers. He was able to provide uh, some cover from the International Red Cross, which would uh, issue passports based upon Vatican identification that was provided by the church in Rome. It should be understood that there was a large pro-Nazi contingent in the Catholic Church. Alois Hudal was a bishop who was very pro-Nazi. He had written books praising the National Socialist regime, praising Hitler. He remained a die-hard Nazi for the rest of his life long after the war. There were a lot of other people who were one way or the other sympathetic to the plight of the Nazis because of the stated anti-communism of the Nazis. The enemy of communism was considered far greater than the Nazis as an enemy, as a political or a spiritual enemy. So the idea was we have to support these people, get them out of the reach of the Allies, make sure they're not being persecuted, make sure they're not being arrested, so they can carry on the anti-communist crusade in the rest of the world, which meant in Latin America, which had revolutionary movements that were starting. It meant in the Middle East, where the Russians were very involved in trying to control uh, access to the Suez Canal and to uh, the oil in the Middle East. So the idea was to sort of salt or seed these very dedicated SS men, these very dedicated Nazis, put them in places of maximum uh, influence so they could help to swing local governments and local movements against the communists. Uh, and this is something that not only the Catholic Church was involved in doing, but as it turned out, and as we've learned in the last uh, decade or so, the United States government was also very involved in doing. <clears throat> and later on in this program, Peter, I'd like to talk about uh, the Reinhard Galen organization, also something well-known to uh, veteran listeners, although perhaps not as much so to some of the younger and newer uh, listeners. Uh, one of the things that uh, I would like to have you develop for us on the uh, Page 113, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences. What the Nazis knew was that they could carry on their ideological struggle from anywhere on earth, and they did. The war was not over for them. They had simply moved the theater of operations to the Middle East, the Americas, Central Asia, and to South and Southeast Asia. Uh, I speak frequently of the 
sort of like basically having gone underground, and I don't want to uh, put words in your mouth or uh, impose my own uh, viewpoints on you, but do you think it would be fair to say that's basically what happened, that uh, rather than simply give up the ghost politically, uh, they simply went underground, dispersed, and carried on from that point? Of course. I mean, this is the... uh this is probably the point of the books that I've written on this subject. I've been a sort of a voice crying in the wilderness trying to talk to uh, people in uh, Simon Wiesenthal, people among others, but uh, a broad range of people in politics and uh, and intelligence and military to to raise this 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 question because the Nazis um, Germany lost the war, uh, the Wehrmacht lost the war. The German army lost the war. Um, you could say even the Nazi party, uh, because they were running Germany, lost the war. But they didn't really see it that way. Uh, they saw the war was lost. They saw, just like World War I, once again the Allies were coming in, carving up the country, taking the territory. This was something they had already gone through in 1918. So now we're in 1945, and the same thing is happening again. They did not give up the true faith at this point. They were bitter. They were angry. Uh, they realized that uh, they had made some bad military decisions in the past, but they still viewed what happened to them as the result of this, you know, worldwide Jewish Masonic conspiracy uh, or a Jewish Masonic communist conspiracy. And so they they were dedicated people. These are true believers. They would not suddenly give up their belief because a war had been lost. Um, they were going to continue to. To, to prosecute this war on many fronts. They were going to spread their ideology. This was very important to them. This, their whole identity uh, as human beings was wrapped up in the idea that they were members of the SS or they were members of a Nazi elite uh, organization and an ideology that was transcendent as far as they were concerned. It involved race. It involved history, archaeology, anthropology. Uh, it involved the idea of constant war being the natural state of being of humanity. It involved the idea of total war, where you know you, you involved every member of your civilization, of your demographic, in a war against you know, an enemy, every member of their demographic, men, women, and children. This was, this was a belief system that they were not going to abandon. So they were simply looking to move their theater of operations to other countries and to continue doing what they did best, which was to fight communists, which was to fight... Um, the Jews, which was to fight uh, the Allies in general, to continue fighting the Americans on the one side and the Soviet Union on the other. And then in 1948, with the creation of the State of Israel, with Israel as a kind of third front. Uh, of course, if you are going to uh, perpetuate a struggle of any kind, ideological and or military, and the underground rights struggle was both, uh, you are going to need money. And in your book, you talk about uh, the Red House document and what it reveals, and also the resulting Nazi economic or financial diaspora. Uh, if you would develop that for us, uh, what is the Red House document? Well, the Red House document was extremely controversial when it was first revealed. And there was controversy among some intelligence agencies as to the legitimacy of this document. Although, at the end of the war, 
uh, by 1945, 46, 47, the document was considered to be genuine and was discussed by our own uh, United States Congress and used as a document to demonstrate what was taking place uh, under their very noses. The Red House document uh, concerned a meeting that was held in Strasbourg in 1944. Uh, this was after the D-Day invasion, after the, uh, the general's plot, Operation Valkyrie, on Hitler to assassinate Hitler had failed. And what happened was uh, a number of very high-ranking financiers, people who had been industrialists, uh, bankers, uh, corporate executives who had actually supported the Reich since the earliest days, were being told by the SS, by legitimate leaders of the Third Reich, that they had to expatriate their money, expatriate their technology, uh, key personnel. They had to ensure that the, the German, the fruit of German labor over the last uh, 10 years of the war uh, would not be lost, that their scientific and engineering accomplishments would not be lost, that their money would stay safe from the reach of the Allies because there was a, de a determined effort by the Allies to try to seize as many uh, Nazi funds as possible to close down their uh, ability to move funds out of the country. All of this was taking place. The SS was uh, concerned about it, and they actually had a meeting which would have been considered treasonous uh, by Hitler had Hitler uh, been conscious of it, had he known about it, which he might not have, um, which was to take everything out of Germany that you, that you could move, whatever wasn't nailed down, and bring it to safe havens, bring it to places where they would not be subject to Allied search and seizure. So this was the, the Maison Rouge, the, the Red House uh, meeting, which took place at the, the Maison Rouge Hotel in Strasbourg um, in, in uh, I believe it was August of 44. And this was their plan for surviving after the war. It's, the document is very credible to me. Uh, from my reading it and from my reading a lot of other documentation from the period, um, it looks like it, this is something that actually happened. There's some uh, criticism over the names in the document. Were these people actually there or not? I think that's uh, a minor issue uh, because the person who had this information was, I believe, a French spy at the time and might have confused some of the names of the personnel. But in any event, it happened. Whether or not we agree that the Red House document is a genuine document or not, the, the upshot is it actually took place. Um, more than 700 uh, companies were established abroad uh, that as um, uh, out, outposts of German economic uh, corporations, banks, and other institutions. Um, the United States government had lists of these companies, the ones that they knew about, which is certainly not all of them, and they found to their horror that some of these German companies had uh, offices and operations in the United States as well as in other places around the world. Uh, and they were effectively uh, safe from being seized according to international law. So there was this, this vast movement of money as well as intellectual property, uh, engineering documents, and engineers themselves all over the world to keep them out of the reach of the Allies, which began in 1944. And this is logical when you realize that the initial movement of the SS to create uh, networks, escape routes out of, the, out of uh, Europe also took place at the same time in the uh, late uh, fall, early winter of 1944, which is when uh, Carlos Foldner, uh, an SS officer in Spain, was in charge of trying to create rat lines uh, to go into Argentina 
through Franco Spain. Um, other kinds of operations were begun at that time. We know there was a major movement in 1944 of people and funds out of Europe. Alan Dulles, uh, who was running OSS in Switzerland at the time, was very aware of it, wrote memos to that effect. They knew that this stuff was being moved. They knew that people, gold, and information was being taken out of the country. So this was the beginning. And you're quite right. The underground could not live without cash, without a source of income. And wars cannot be cannot be conducted without money, without a source of income. I think that when we read histories of World War II, we quite often don't read the financial histories of the war. We don't know where the money's coming from, how it's being uh, generated, how it's being spent, uh, how uh, international banking operations are, are conducted. This is sort of uh, black magic for many of us. We don't really understand, even balancing our own checkbooks, how do we understand how uh, these various banks are moving cash all over the world with impunity uh, and managing to preserve their assets even though their war is lost, even though Germany was in ruins. It was in total despair. Most of the cities had been leveled. It was nothing but ashes. And yet, somehow there was this quote-unquote German miracle that took place within a decade or two and suddenly they were back in charge of their own economy, back in charge of their government and, and all the rest of it. This is something that only can take place uh, among people who have this kind of access to the cash um, that was hidden abroad for so many decades. This is this is a reality. I mean, the, the Freundeskreis, uh, the, the, the circle of friends who supported Hitler in the very beginning is a who's who of international corporations. Uh, as we mentioned, I think, last time, uh, Standard Oil, uh, many people don't realize, was uh, is a German company, a Deutsche Amerikanische Petroleum Gesellschaft, the German-American petroleum company, was part of this Friends of, of Hitler that started in the, in the 1930s to help make sure that Hitler would be named Chancellor of Germany. Uh, all the steel, the major steel company, Schroeder Bank, um, all of these institutions that are hallmarks of the German economy, many of them even today, were behind Hitler in those days and were part of the network of moving the funds and personnel overseas at the end of the war. Uh, we, you mentioned Alan Dulles, who, of course, was the Bern Switzerland station chief, so to speak, or certainly the main OSS uh, agent in Switzerland at that time. He also, however, along with his brother John Foster Dulles, was a major partner in Sullivan and Cromwell. I wonder if you would uh, develop that and the significance of Sullivan and Cromwell with regard to these uh, global financial connections, in particular American corporate connections to Nazi Germany. Well, Sullivan and Cromwell is a whole story in and of itself. Uh, we're talking about a law firm based in New York City, out of which uh, the best and the brightest were were recruited in the OSS and for various operations uh, during World War II, uh, but before and, and, and beyond. Uh, Sullivan and Cromwell was involved, for instance, in um, ensuring that the eugenics programs that were being developed in Germany were uh, discussed and being uh, admired in the United States. The very famous eugenics conference that took place in the 1930s in New York, um, Sullivan and Cromwell was behind that, as well as the Hamburg-America line, which was moving the German scientists, uh, shipping them from Germany to the United States to make speeches uh, about the necessity for race 
uh, cleanliness for uh, for race science, Rasenkunde, which was the the idea that uh, in order to purify the race, um, the feeble-minded, the handicapped had to be eliminated, and then extending that to other races, which, as we know, uh, took place in the United States for for decades and decades. This idea that you could not allow certain people to marry and to have children, um, whether it was racially uh, motivated or based on some idea of intelligence or or physical uh, capability. So all of this, Sullivan and Cromwell was behind that. They were behind a lot of the intelligence operations that took place in the United States against uh, uh, some of the enemies of uh, of what Alan and uh, John Foster Dulles were trying to accomplish. As we know, John Foster Dulles became uh, Secretary of State. Uh, Alan Dulles was in the uh, was in the OSS and later was Director of Central Intelligence at the CIA. So you have this um, this marriage of convenience between the Dulles brothers and the administrations, the, the American political administrations, going back uh, to the time of Roosevelt, certainly, and then, of course, Truman and Eisenhower. Um, it's the Dulles brothers that were behind, uh, and Sullivan and Cromwell, by extension, were behind even some of the, uh, the intrigues surrounding the Muslim Brotherhood and establishing uh relationships with a, a quote unquote radical islam during the 1950s in order to fight the soviet union it's just uh they deserve a book in, in themselves um we're talking about even connections to richard nixon and and watergate and everything else i mean everything's stemming from that law firm sullivan and cromwell uh wild bill donovan who ran the oss and of course the dulles brothers and all the rest of it this is a very incestuous little group and it's one of the reasons I became involved in this study in, in the very first place was back during the Watergate era when I began seeing a lot of the names uh, keep cropping up no matter what political uh, uh, intrigue you were investigating at the time. You kept finding the Dulles brothers were there. Uh, you kept finding other other famous names kept showing up, uh, E. Howard Hunt, for instance, or, or some of the others, were, were always there. It was like a very small family a very small, very incestuous group of people who seem to always be in the right place at the right time to manipulate events, to manipulate money, to manipulate personnel, to manipulate public opinion. Um, so this is what got me really involved in studying this material all the way back in the 1970s, was this very strange sinking feeling that I kept seeing the same people involved. Uh, in uh, discussion, I'd like to uh, backtrack uh, ever so slightly. Uh, one of the things that, uh, many, well, certainly our history books and our, our journalistic uh, organs really do not talk about this to any significant extent, but the people who were so openly supportive of, or perhaps uh, due to uh, shared anti-communist sentiments are resonant with the Third Reich were not small people. These were not insignificant names. For example, in connection with the Ratlon, you mentioned uh, Father Joganovich and uh, Bishop Hudal. Uh, much of the uh, paperwork that was provided for these Nazi fugitives, many of them war criminals of the First Order, was provided by a fellow who was uh, at that point known as Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini. Uh, if you would briefly tell us about him and how he came to become much better known than Cardinal as Cardinal Montini. Certainly. Cardinal Montini uh, was running an operation called Caritas, which is Latin for charity. It was Montini 
his operation that provided much of the false documentation and the safe houses for the Nazis who were escaping. And as you rightly mentioned, these were war criminals of the first order. We're talking people like uh, Franz Stangl, we're talking about Mengele, we're talking about Klaus Barbie, who wound up in Bolivia. Uh, we're talking quite possibly about Martin Bormann as well. Uh, so we're talking about some of the leading figures of the Third Reich who were protected by Cardinal Montini at the time, who uh, had a position uh, Secretary of State under Pius XII, and who himself, Cardinal Montini, actually later became Pope Paul VI. So we have this, this blessing, this benediction, by the most uh, powerful Catholic prelates at the time, a benediction on the Nazis, uh, in some cases, uh, very cynically, uh, some of the SS, in order to get uh, Vatican documentation, they quote-unquote converted to Roman Catholicism if they had not been baptized and converted before. So the Nazis would simply you know, baptize uh, a, a war criminal as a Catholic, and at that point they were offered the protection of the Catholic Church. And in this case, that means that Hitler himself, would have been given protection by the Catholic Church because Hitler had been born and raised a Catholic and had gone to Catholic school. Uh, Heinrich Himmler would have been protected as well for the same reasons. So you had uh, this very strange um, policy by the Catholic Church that they were going to protect Nazi war criminals under any circumstances, particularly if they were Catholic. Um, that was the, the justification for actually helping these people escape uh, to other countries where they would continue their murderous activities for decades after the war. Uh, something that you mentioned, uh, and again, pe people may not be aware of the size of the sums of uh, the, the uh, just how much money was actually being moved abroad. And relatively late in your book, you mentioned one shipment uh, of money. I believe it was from the Reichsbank uh, or one of the corporate fronts that was set up uh, by Axel Adolfsvogel Operation Eagle's Flight. And it was a sum that was sent to Brazil, I think, in March of 1945. And just that one shipment, one of many, many, many shipments around the world, was enormous in by today's value. Can you uh, just detail that for us briefly? Uh, yes, I, I don't know which one precisely you're speaking of, but one comes to my mind immediately uh, because the documentation has just came to uh, worldwide attention about less than 10 years ago. Uh, and this was a shipment of 40 tons, that's tons, of gold from the Reichsbank. Uh, this 40 tons of gold uh, was shipped through uh, Portugal, the Bank of Portugal. It was underground, uh, in, uh, actually under the streets of, uh, of Lisbon, and um, it was revealed, the paperwork was discovered, that of this gold, 40 tons of it was shipped from Portugal to Macau, which at that time, of course, was a Portuguese colony. That 40 tons of gold was then split into two shipments. One shipment of 20 tons went to China for some reason. It might have been to help prop up the, uh, the Chiang Kai-shek movement, uh, which is quite possible, and another 20 tons of gold went to Indonesia. Um, we're not quite sure what that was all about, but I have my, my suspicions, which I talk about in the book. Uh, I believe that was part of what later became known as the Revolutionary Fund that was being controlled by uh, then-President Sukarno. That's only 
40 tons of gold. That sounds like an enormous amount of gold, uh, and it is, especially by today's standards. If you start to use uh, roughly $1,000 an ounce and do the calculations, we're talking about a huge fortune. Um, but that's only, as I say, a drop in the bucket. We're talking about, uh, in terms of gold alone, uh, we're talking about hundreds of tons of gold. Uh, much of this either left Europe for uh, Latin America or it left Europe for Asia. In some cases, a lot of the so-called Black Eagle gold, which was gold that had been stamped with the uh, Black Eagle of the Reichsbank, wound up in Asia. Uh, some Black Eagle gold wound up in uh, in the Philippines, in uh, buried in caves there. Uh, the Japanese were also burying gold like crazy all throughout the uh, Southeast Asia as their war was winding down, as they saw, again, the handwriting on the wall. They were burying the gold because they did not want to take it back to Japan, where it would be seized, of course, by the Allies. It was the same motivation for the Japanese as for the Nazis. And what we don't realize is that there was a certain degree of cooperation between the two governments, between the, the Third Reich and between the Japanese at the time. Uh, there was some technical uh, uh, cooperation. The Nazis were shipping uh, their technology for building atomic weapons because they were, they were in the middle of that technology. They were shipping that information plus uh, blueprints and essential parts for the V-1 and V-2 uh, rockets uh, via submarine. They were shipping to Japan. It was interdicted towards the end of the war uh, by the American forces. Um, so there was a lot of cooperation and a lot of uh, trade between the two countries. Japan had a lot of access to rubber uh, in Southeast Asia and a lot of other essential raw materials for the war. And the Germans were shipping ball bearings and that sort of stuff that the Japanese needed uh, to the Japan. So there was trade going on between the countries. As the war was winding down, then this turned into a desperate attempt to hide as much uh, money as possible overseas. So the Germans hid a lot of it in Latin America. They paid off Juan Perón uh, when Perón became president in order to protect their interests in Argentina. Some money went to Bolivia. Some went to Chile and Peru and Brazil. Uh, and some money actually went into Southeast Asia. And interestingly enough, some Japanese money wound up in South America as well. So they were, they were moving money, uh, hard currency, uh, gold bars, artworks, uh, sculptures, uh, gold statues, and that sort of thing, all through, all over the world. Uh, the locations of this, uh, were known only to a handful of people, uh, some people who buried the money and the gold overseas were then executed like the old pirate days so they couldn't reveal the location so uh, this is what was going on and some of this money then became used later to prop up uh, pro uh, I would say pro-fascist or extreme right political parties in Japan and of course back in Germany uh, we have another whole story taking place there as more and more Germans who had been Nazis uh, found themselves incorporated into the West German government uh, something that uh, is mentioned in the Red House document, including a portion of that text that you quote, and that is that the provision was being made for uh, financial and industrial giants in Germany to continue to fund the Nazi party underground after the war. Tell us about that. Yes, there was um, an idea that... Um Many of the people who had been uh, defeated in the war, uh, the SS in particular, would create stay-behind groups, uh, werewolf operations. So there was a, a very, very real possibility 
and American and Allied intelligence was actually got very good intelligence about this, got very good data, that there was going to be uh, the creation of a, um, a kind of a Fourth Reich in, uh, in Germany and Austria. There was going to be, number one, um, a continuing kind of guerrilla operation uh, against the Allies for a while to sort of destabilize them. And they were going to build this, um, this elaborate uh, underground, uh, the National Redoubt, as they called it, a kind of uh, fortress in Austria near Salzburg, where they were going to hold out as long as possible and move some of that money into corporations and to personnel within Austria and Germany uh, to prop them up uh, once the uh, dust had settled and once everyone had been denazified. Um, there were a lot. There's a lot of mystery about this place, uh, and only a couple of months ago, another vast underground operation was discovered in Austria by, by oddly enough, an Austrian filmmaker, who had been uh, looking at all the documents and realized that there was an indication that there was such an underground operation in Austria, and he found it near Linz, near Hitler's birthplace. Uh, again, a very well-built underground, vast underground operation. Um, and it's impossible to believe that it took this long to find it. Uh, people have been telling us, uh, historians have said, there was no truth to this underground operation, to the stay-behind organizations, that the werewolf operation was uh, minimal at best. Uh, a lot of other discussions like that. And yet here we have a, an enormous underground place where uh, German uh, secret weapons were being developed, uh, where uh, new German planes were being developed, all underground, uh, in a large, <laughs> a large uh, created, constructed bunker that no one knew existed until last year. So if this is any indication, that means that no one was really looking very hard to find out, number one, the underground bunkers, which were said to exist, which uh, historians have poo-pooed uh, decades after the war, but which we now know to have been true. It also shows that we know nothing, really, of how the Nazi underground was operating after the war. Uh, the underground in both senses, not just the underground facilities, but the Nazi underground itself. We know that um, the Galen organization, as one good example of what we were talking about here, is a man who was head of intelligence operations against the Soviet Union for the Nazis, was hired by us, by the CIA, to run our anti-Soviet operations. Uh, Galen, General Galen, then hired a whole bunch of his Nazi uh, friends, mostly SS from the old days, and they became essentially CIA agents fighting against the Soviet Union. And his organization then later became the head, uh, became actually the uh, West German Intelligence Service. So Galen found himself working once again for Germany, once again against the Soviet Union, uh, with, a, with a staff that was largely former war criminals. Uh, and SS officers, members of criminal organizations, who were now working for him. Uh, this took money. Uh, it took money to uh, supply uh, the agents that he had working uh, behind enemy lines, behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. Uh, and since they were not really working for us, and since they were really, not really working for the West German government, they were working for someone else. Uh, their operations were conducted on behalf of the Nazi underground, largely, and this was being financed by Nazi money, which was still being held in Switzerland uh, for, for decades and decades after the war. So we financed an intelligence agency, and the Nazis then took that intelligence agency and ran with it and created their own uh, intelligence agency throughout 
Western Europe and in parts of Eastern Europe. They were using that money that they had set up uh, to finance uh, liberation movements in different parts of the world. It, the whole thing is a mess. It's an absolute uh, a mess. It's a rat's nest of financing, of personnel, and of hidden agendas. Uh, when we brought it, the Nazi scientists to our country under Operation Paperclip, we were so naive that we thought that these were the good Germans, quote-unquote, that they had suddenly seen the light, uh, they had been defeated in the war, and now they would you know, willingly work for us and help develop our space program, uh, which is ridiculous on the face of it. For the first 10 years, at least, of Operation Paperclip, uh, the Nazi scientists were not working for us. They were in active communication with Nazi scientists behind the Iron Curtain, for instance. They were sending information back and forth. They were sabotaging our space program. And the same thing was going on with Reinhard Galen uh, and with the other people that we thought were, quote-unquote, on our side, the, the so-called good Germans, were actually working on their own agenda. They had an agenda, which was to destabilize both the Soviet Union and the United States, and that's what they were up to for decades and this financing was helping them do that by placing uh, German corporations in positions of power, not only in Germany, but in other parts of the world, and recreating the Third Reich as a kind of international around the world. Well, before we move to the uh, subject of the Cold War and how that provided such a remarkable uh, garden in which the Nazi flowers could grow and blossom, so to speak, uh, Tell us about the Bank for International Settlements and how that fits into the dynamics that you have been telling us about. Well, the Bank of International Settlements is a scandal. I mean, it's it's a scandal by anybody's um, metric. We have um, a bank that was set up by the the brilliant financier Hjalmar Schacht. Uh, Schacht was one of those people who was part of that circle uh, around Himmler and around Hitler to support Hitler's um, nomination to be Chancellor of Germany. Schacht was the, the man who engineered Germany's economic recovery after World War I. He helped to rearm Germany, to remilitarize it, uh, sometimes by using uh, very dubious means, by having armaments built in different countries, by having, his, uh, by having troops trained in different countries. He was able to move money around, move people around, and he created something called the Bank of International Settlements. This was supposedly to pay German war reparations after the end of World War I. Uh, there had been some very onerous uh, debts were laid uh, against the, the door of Kaiser's Germany, and Germany was expected to pay back the costs of the war to all the countries that they had invaded, they had fought with. Uh, the Bank of International Settlements was intended to do this. Of course, it never really did. Uh, they never really paid any reparations out of that bank, but Schacht used it as a very convenient way to launder money for the Reich. The bank was headquartered in Switzerland. Um, most of the members of the bank, the board of directors, were either Nazis or, uh, by, the, by the 1930s, were either Nazis or were people who were uh, bankers from the occupied territory, such as Czechoslovakia. So you had people who were part of the Third Reich actually running the bank, except that the president of the bank was an American. Thomas McKittrick. Uh, Thomas McKittrick was an excellent financier. Uh, he had his eye on the ball as far as the money was concerned. He was able to help the Reich launder money, to move money around, to bury gold uh, in Switzerland, to create false accounts, to do all the things that the Third Reich needed to keep, um, to keep conducting their war effort. 
And in fact, he was so in favor of it that right in the middle of World War II, as American troops are fighting and dying in Europe and in Asia, uh, McKittrick is making speeches to financiers in the United States saying not to worry about the Third Reich, uh, not to worry about their investments in Germany, that Hitler is solid and the Reich is solid and uh, they have nothing to worry about, basically. Uh, actions that would be considered treasonous uh, under any other circumstances, like the like the actions of, of the Rockefellers during the war, especially John D. Rockefeller, who would have been considered uh, a traitor. Uh, McKittrick would have been considered a traitor as well, but he wasn't. Uh, the Bank of International Settlements still exists. It's one of the most secretive banks in the world. It is a banker's bank. Uh, it's where the bankers keep uh, the bank's uh, transactions secret. So secret that uh, for years there was no electronic communication in or out of the bank. Everything was done by very quiet men in quiet rooms with a telephone call. And money was moved around that way. Uh, it was moved out of Europe. It was moved to various safe havens around the world. BIS was um, and still remains uh, a bank that has no accountability, no transparency. Uh, you can look at the, the bank's uh, website. You can try to figure out some history of the bank, and it's extremely opaque. <laughs> there is no way for, on the bank's own website where it discusses what they did during World War II or the fact that it was created by Hallmar Schacht, uh, which was Hitler's banker, the man who created the German economic miracle, and who continued to do so for other countries after World War II. Um, Schock should have been imprisoned. He should have been uh, one of the war criminals who was, uh, because of his, his, his role in, in conducting the war and financing the war, he should have been at the end of a hangman's noose like all the others, but he managed to escape that fate. He spent a couple of years in jail, uh, and then after that he became uh, a consultant to uh, companies and to countries around the world. He was a consultant to nations. He was a consultant to Sukarno's Indonesia, as an example. And he's the one, again, uh, who went to Indonesia, to went to Sukarno, and recommended that Sukarno create a kind of Islamic crescent, a new caliphate that would extend from Thailand all the way through Indonesia, uh, mostly most of Southeast Asia and the Philippines, as a buffer against communist China. So here, once again, is a Nazi uh, advising Muslims on creating a Muslim caliphate to defend against communism. And this was shocked back in 1952. So this is what we face. When we talk about the Bank of International Settlements, we're talking about one of the ways in which the Nazis were able to launder a lot of money. We don't know to this day how much money was laundered through that bank. We have no clue. We don't know how much gold was under the supervision of Thomas McKittrick and his, uh, his Nazi uh, colleagues at the bank. We have no idea. This just went on and on and on and has gone on to this day. We don't know what they're doing or how they're doing it. No one ever talks about them. They talk about the World Bank. They talk about the International Monetary Fund. But they don't really talk about the Bank of International Settlements. And it's still a very powerful, extremely uh, secretive institution. Uh, before we move uh, back to the Middle East and the Islamic world, you've already touched on the uh, proposition by uh, Yalma Horace Greeley Schacht was his full name, to, yes. to set up a Muslim caliphate in Indonesia as a bulwark against uh, communist China. Uh, if you would just briefly uh, talk about how the... Cold War and the post-war uh, mood in America basically favored Nazis 
and uh, also uh, worked against people who were anti-Nazi because they were perceived as pro-communist. Well, yeah, I mean, this this information we just discussed, for instance, about the the Bank of International Settlements, about BIS, um, was at the forefront of meetings that were being held in 1944-1945 by the U.S. government. Um, We had people like Henry Morgenthau, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, who wanted to destroy BIS Bank, wanted to take it apart, and basically wanted to make sure that Germany would never develop an industrial capacity again. Um, but because he was Jewish, uh, it was considered to be, you know, uh, sort of a Jewish hysterical reaction to what was taking place, and he was largely ignored. He tried to get um, the bank closed down. He tried to get uh, Germany to be completely um, deindustrialized. None of that happened. Uh, the Bretton Woods uh, Conference, uh, which was taking place, which was trying to decide what to do with, with Germany, with the finances and reparations, uh, wound up uh, giving a blank check to the very people that we were fighting. So uh, Morgenthau was extremely upset, and he became a target, uh, and his associates became targets of um, a red-baiting scare that began as the, uh, the Iron Curtain came down and as the warnings went out about the Soviet Union, uh, all those who uh, opposed um, Nazism, those who uh, were in favor of something that made more sense uh, in terms of real politics, in terms of American foreign policy, were shouted down. You had the rise of the McCarthy era. You had uh, people who were suddenly, we had switched from Nazis being the enemy to the communists being the enemy, specifically uh, the Soviet Union, but also... Let's not forget uh, China had gone communist also by 1948. So suddenly you had communists everywhere, uh, and this hysteria that this uh, this new kind of economic political ideology would take over the entire world had begun. Suddenly Stalin, who had been our ally uh, during World War II, was now our enemy. Uh, everything had gone completely upside down, and the Nazis who had been our enemies were now our friends. So you had the anti-communist hysteria was used as justification for working with Nazis, uh, both at home and abroad. Uh, It was used as justification for putting Nazis in position of power and uh, influence in the Middle East and in South America. Suddenly you had um, an anti-communist hysteria, which was actually greater, from my estimation, from what, what I read, greater than any kind of anti-Nazi hysteria that might have, been, that might have been taking place. There really wasn't a great deal of anti-Nazi sentiment in the United States uh, prior to the war. You had a lot of people who were very pro-Nazi, who thought that Hitler was doing a good thing for Germany, who believed in this kind of extreme nationalism, who saw in socialism and in communism a threat uh, to their well-being. The banks, of course, saw socialism and communism as a threat. The corporations saw it as a threat. Uh, The labor unions were a threat, uh, and they were considered to be hotbeds of of socialism and Russian-style communism. So it was a very intense period. It's the period that uh, I was born into and grew up with. Um, We were looking for communists under the bed. Uh, We we saw communists everywhere. McCarthy was telling us that communists were running the government. Uh, He was stopping just short of calling, uh, or maybe he didn't, uh, Eisenhower a communist. But certainly uh, Truman and Roosevelt were considered communists, according to this theory. Uh, These were all communists that were putting communists in places of uh, extreme importance. The CIA was a hotbed of communism and leftist thinking. 
all of this was uh, was part of the the atmosphere at the time, very similar to today with our our fear of terrorism uh, and this sort of almost uh, maniacal hysteria where terrorism is concerned, which kind of blots out any kind of calm, rational thinking about it. We had the same thing during the Cold War, and it gave us uh, the opportunity to become involved in international politics in a way that we really hadn't before. The U.S. had not really been that involved in the politics of other countries before the end of World War II. And after the end of the war, we suddenly became the superpower, especially after dropping the atomic bombs in Japan. So now suddenly we were the world's policemen, and we were going to be involved in international politics in a very profound way, in a way that hasn't, even, hasn't stopped since then. It changed everything for, for America and for the world in general. And suddenly we were the ones who were going to decide what was right, what was wrong, uh, who was on our side, who was against us. And we, we divided the world into left and right. We divided the world into two polar opposites. It was the communist superpowers on one side, and it was the Ameri American superpower and its allies on the other. And there was no middle ground. And this is what we faced during that, that, that period known as the Cold War. Um, we were very... Uh, happy to work with people who had fought the Soviets during World War II, which meant not only the German, quote-unquote, Nazis, but also Eastern European uh, right-wing uh, fascist elements, uh, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, Croatian, you name it. Uh, whoever had fought the Nazi, whoever fought the communists, rather, during World War II was now a potential ally of the United States, and this just muddied the waters even more. Uh, we have uh, just a few minutes left, Peter. Uh, we spent a fair amount of time in our first two interviews talking about Max von Oppenheim and the formulation of the concept of global jihad as a pro-colonial uh, device to recruit uh, proxy warriors, uh, something that we're going to take up at greater length in our next talk. But that is uh, Hajimin al-Husseini, his alliance with the Third Reich, and then perhaps next week we can talk about how that, too, carried over into the post-war period. Uh, tell us about the Grand Mufti and his alliance with the Reich. Well, the Grand Mufti, uh, as we mentioned, was a man who uh, had gone to university in Egypt, um, who had fought on the side of the Ottoman Turks um, against the, the, the Allies during World War I. Of course, that, that battle had been lost. The Ottoman Empire was destroyed by the 1920s. It no longer existed. Uh, Al-Husseini was a Palestinian. He belonged to a very prestigious Palestinian family. I believe it was his brother who was mayor of Jerusalem at the time. So we have somebody with a very prominent family, very prominent background, um, who, however, saw that the, the Arab revolt uh, had been betrayed. Now, remember, Husseini was not really part of the Arab revolt at the time. He was part of the Ottoman uh, army fighting against the Arab revolt. But once the dust had settled, he realized that the British and the French had carved up the region, had promised uh, a homeland to the Jews in Palestine, had, done, had really gone back on any agreement that they had made with any of the Arab organizations. And, of course, the Palestinians themselves had not been uh, brought into these conversations at all. They were not part of the of the uh, arrangements of the negotiations. In fact, there were no Arab signatories to the Sykes-Picot Agreement, uh, to the Balfour Declaration, or anything like that. Um, the Arabs were left out of these discussions. Um, they were considered kind of rabble. They were, you know, the serfs of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and even though they had helped 
in overthrowing the Ottoman Empire with the Arab Revolt, they were not considered uh, important enough to really include in these political deliberations of the 1915, 16, 17, and 18. So Hussein, al-Husseini, at the end, realized that uh, Palestine was going to be up for grabs. It really was being carved up into pieces by the Western powers, and a big chunk of it was going to be given to the state of Israel. So this is how al-Husseini began. He um, began with this vitriolic hatred of, of the West, of, uh, of, the, of the British and the French in particular, and that developed into a very cogent, uh, very consistent political ideology. Uh, eventually, during World War II, uh, he saw Hitler as being an anti-colonialist, just as the Kaiser was being portrayed as an anti-colonialist in World War I, someone who was going to fight the colonial powers of England and France. Now, Hitler was seen the same way. He was going to fight the colonial powers of, of uh, Britain and France, and also the colonial powers of the Netherlands and some of the other countries around the world, and of course against the Soviet Union. So al-Husseini saw in the Third Reich and in Hitler personally uh, a gift to Islam, a gift to his religion, a gift to his people. He was going to help liberate uh, Palestine from the clutches of the British and the French. So al-Husseini, uh, this ideologue, basically he wasn't a particularly well-read uh, or uh, well-instructed theologian as far as uh, Islamic religion was concerned, even though he was the Mufti, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. It was a political appointment. Uh, he was, however, an ideologue. And al-Husseini was able to go to Berlin. They gave him a villa in Berlin uh, from where he broadcast uh, in Arabic to the Middle East, telling them to support the Third Reich, telling them to support Hitler and the Nazis, to help them fight against the British and the French. He was extremely prominent uh, he was uh, shown in many photographs blessing a Muslim division of the SS, which took place in the Balkans. It was the Bosnian Mountain Division, the Hanshar Division of the SS. And so he was very well known, uh, well, both Peter, in Germany... Peter, excuse Russia. me for, for cutting you off, because we are out of time. Oh, Let, let's uh, develop this, and my, my fault, uh, let's develop this at a greater length next week, because it is so important and has uh, direct post-war implications for the, among other issues, the Israeli-Palestinian question, and others. Uh, Peter, where can people get your book? Uh, thank you very much. Yes, uh, The Usual Suspects. You can get it at Amazon.com, uh, at Barnes & Noble. Um, and you can, of course, uh, look at my website, uh, PeterLavenda.com. Uh, I will update occasionally when I have new information, and there is some new information uh, there about some of the information in my book that uh, some of my readers have kindly uh, contributed. So, that's where you can go. Now, people often ask me, what can I do about this? This is something modest uh, that people can do. They can get this book, and I have no financial uh, stake in this whatsoever. This concludes, for the record, program number 840, interview number 3 with Peter Lavenda about the Hitler legacy. For Peter Lavenda, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening. This is being recorded on March 22nd of the year 2015. Ciao.